0: They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are very much diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 hours? Or 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head. One of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode forty four Back to Work. Well. Summer 2023 seems to be coming to a rather damp end in the UK, and as autumn begins and as the nights begin to draw in, I hope you'll be joining me as we continue our search for the identity of Fred. Episode 43, which is a few weeks back now, documented our ongoing investigation into the disappearance of John Dick in February 1969. That's a pretty major mystery in its own right. Irrespective of whether he turns out to be Fred. Time will tell on that. But of course we need to keep our other options open. John Jick is just a possibility. That's all he ever can be until we know the identity. So we need to persevere with our other lines of inquiry of which there are many. So in this episode we'll bring things to a reasonable place in relation to John Jick whilst outlining where we'll be going next. So first back to Liverpool on a blustery Saturday afternoon at the start of February 1969. What exactly happened on that afternoon? I've had a good chance to reflect on the circumstances surrounding John Dick's disappearance and over that time of reflection I've come to the conclusion that there's no reason at all to believe that John Dick died on that day. The 1st of February 1969, the day he went missing. We know with certainty he was attacked. And we know where and we know by whom and he becomes in the aftermath of that attack a missing person now is he a missing person at the hands of the people who attacked him or is he a missing person through his own hands that's what I want to talk about in a little bit more detail in the first part of this podcast fortunately we've got the statements of the three youths involved in that attack John Fitzsimmons 18 Thomas Roach 17 and Arthur Burke 17 these were reported in the newspapers at the trial of these three youths when they were convicted in April 1969, two months after John Dick had disappeared. They were arrested in possession of John Dick's savings book and all three gave fairly detailed statements to the police. They were then reported in the newspapers and I'll read them one by one. Firstly, Fitzsimmons. They've been drinking in town. That's Liverpool. They went into a toilet at the bottom of James Street. They were coming up the steps when Roach punched a man in the face. He then put his hand inside the man's coat and took out a bank book. Fitzsimmons added, I didn't hit him. We all ran off and we left him on the steps. I don't know if he was unconscious or not. We ran onto an empty bus and we all looked at the bank book. Roach's statement was this. I punched this fellow in the face and he went backwards onto the flat part and he didn't move. I think I knocked him out because he didn't move. I saw a book sticking out of the man's pocket. I took it and we ran up the steps. I left the other two with the man and was told by one of them that one of them had put the boot in, implying that a defenceless John Jick had been kicked. Returning from the pier head, Burke went back into the toilets and the other two asked him if the fellow was still there. He said no. And finally Burke's account. I saw Roach punch the fellow twice, once in the stomach and when he rolled over, punched him again, somewhere near his neck. That was on the steps. The fellow went down. I ran up and I kicked him as he lay on the ground, somewhere on his arm. I saw Roach go through the man's pockets and take a bank book. So if we believe those statements it seems that Roach was the instigator. He punched John Jick twice. Once in the stomach and once in the face or neck area. Completely unprovoked. And as they were coming up the steps and that's interesting because it implies that they were exiting the underground toilet. John Jick hadn't even made it into the toilet. and He fell back onto the stone slabbed flat part of the steps. Probably a flat area between two flights of steps. Roach leaves the scene at that point, and Burke, who's behind Roach, kicks him on his way past as Jick was lying motionless on the steps. They all run out into James Street, jump onto a bus, and look at the bank book. They go to Head, which is interesting because that's where John Jick's car was, but that's probably coincidental, and shortly after they return. Burke went to see if John Jick was still there, and he wasn't. Now it's clear that was a senseless vicious assault by three mindless thugs. But one thing is clear to me. John Jick didn't die there. Or we'd have a body on the steps of the toilets and we don't. Or these three thugs would need to carry a dead body through a city thronged with shoppers and football fans on a Saturday afternoon. And that didn't happen either. So that attack and his death are kind of unrelated in the sense that one doesn't immediately cause the other. James Street Liverpool's busy with shoppers and football fans. You're not carrying a dead body undetected at 4.30 in the afternoon. So what happens to John Jick after the attack? Almost certainly he would have got some help immediately just from decent passers by. People coming out the toilets. There may have been people in the toilets he knew. We know from the blood found in the car that it's almost certain that John Jick made his way back to the car either on his own or with someone else. So the presence of bloody tissues implied that John Jick sat at least for a period of time in the car, contemplating his situation. Was he alone at that point? We don't know. But what were John Jick's options at that point? By this time it's 5 in the afternoon there's still time to get back to the gang show. But he didn't do that. He could have committed suicide. Unlikely. He's at Liverpool Pierhead on a Saturday afternoon. There's ferries crisscrossing the Mersey all the time. No one saw him do it. His body doesn't appear. Or maybe more likely he made the decision to walk away from his old life in the Isle of Man. Start afresh. Probably with the help of some of the contacts he already had within the gay scene in Liverpool where he'd been part and parcel for quite a while I suspect where I wanted to leave John Dick for now is to at least give you as close to a definitive timeline as we can and that's really what we can deduce from the various newspaper reports so we're talking about Saturday the 1st of February 1 o'clock he arrives by steamer gets his group of Scouts together, gets them off the boat, gets them organised. Two o'clock he's arriving at Birkenhead Scout HQ, he settles the group there, tells the Scouts that he's got to return to Liverpool alone, even though they were under the impression that they'd all be going back to Liverpool, but he'd be back in about an hour and a half and then they would all go. He's got to return a book and he wants to do that on his own. 330 we know he visits Mrs Cofftree. She lives in Osmerston Road, Prenton, that's in Birkenhead, so that's quite close to the Birkenhead Scout HQ. He stays with her for about half an hour. Four o'clock he leaves Mrs Cofftree and goes to Liverpool, drives to Liverpool. That would have taken 15 minutes to drive there. It's clear by now it was never his intention to go back to the Scouts and then take them all over to Liverpool. There isn't enough time. It's four o'clock, and the gang show starts at six forty. Two and a half hours later, at five o'clock, he's attacked entering James Street toilets, and at that point, John Jick completely disappears. At eleven o'clock, his minivan is discovered with bloodstains, and a bloodstained handkerchief at Liverpool landing stage. And it's also reported that the front passenger seat was stained with blood. Now since the last podcast I've had an opportunity to continue my search for anything reporting on this case and I found another couple of uh, newspaper reports that I found quite interesting. The first one is a newspaper report from the 7th of the 2nd 69 so a week later in which his parents described their worry and his disappearance uh, describing him as a reliable and dependable man and this is completely out of character. Bill Cook who is in charge of the Isle of Man CID was reported as saying the following at the time. We can't understand how the van came to be found at the landing stage at night and it's very puzzling that Mr Jick would take the tickets for the gang show and the return journey to the Isle of Man with him after leaving the boys in Birkenhead. A further puzzling feature was that the van was found unlocked. These three aspects are all completely contrary to Mr. Jick's general behaviour. And according also to the office colleagues at the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company, Mr. Jick knew Liverpool very well, having visited the city very often. Now, there's a couple of things from that. These things that Bill Cook the head of the CID was puzzled by. Finding the car at the landing stage at night. Now, that doesn't seem puzzling in and of itself. It's only puzzling if it's implying that the car or the van wasn't there during the day or the evening. Because why else would it be puzzling to find it at night? Is he suggesting that it was only returned to the landing stage in the evening or at night before it was found. That's interesting. Secondly, why did he take the tickets? Well, I don't find that puzzling, really, because he fully expected to return. He left the scout group, he thought he'd be seeing them again a little later that afternoon. But thirdly, the van was found unlocked. Now, that is puzzling. People didn't always lock their cars back in the day, but this seems out of character seems especially strange if it was contrary to the normal behaviour of John Dick. he sounds like he had a reputation for being very careful about things. So does that suggest someone else was driving it, who wasn't as careful, and maybe kept the keys? Or that the car wasn't going to be needed by anyone in the future? And does the bloodstained passenger seat also imply that at this time John Dick was the passenger not the driver. So what are the implications of all that? So the mystery deepens. I'm loath to give up on this so we're going to be keeping a very close eye on this part of the investigation because I still consider John Jick a possibility. I've discovered nothing that rules him out and an awful lot that corresponds with Fred. So he's going to continue to be a live part of this investigation for quite a while yet until we can safely rule him out. One final thing I wanted to mention and it involves a conversation I had with the man who was the second in command on that fateful trip to Bergenhead you'll remember we've been in contact with him and it involves John Jakes scout uniform. It's never mentioned in any of the reports of the incident. It's never mentioned what was left in the car but we know he had it with him and it was probably in the car because he would have been expected to wear it that evening but we know he wasn't wearing it when he was attacked in the toilets he was wearing a suit and a coat so did he change into it and maybe just the shirt part of it because he's probably covered in blood did he return to the car which I'm certain he did and change into at least part of that Scout uniform and that's potentially important because in relation to Fred one of the explanations of the lack of clothes is that part of the clothing or all of the clothing was too identifiable. And it would have immediately identified the victim. Was that clothing related to the scouts? John Jiggs' scout uniform, that we know he had with him. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Wherever you may be in the world, welcome to the Fred Club. It's fantastic to have your involvement in the case because... You're a listener, you're involved, probably like no other podcast that's out there. You can influence the investigation. The best thing to do to reach me is to send me an email to fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. We always answer those emails. I've decided to separate this podcast from the Who Was Fred The Head Facebook group. Things were getting a bit heated on there, a bit odd. Not that kind of place I really want to be involved. So you won't find me on that group responding to questions anymore. I think the sensible thing to do will be to create a specific Facebook group for this podcast and a website probably. And there'll be details of how you can join that group on the next podcast. We're busy developing that at the moment. I think it's the right thing to do. Of course, one of the things I most enjoyed since the last podcast was the Fred the Head meetup absolutely fantastic day completely sold out fascinating theories fascinating contributions throughout the day and actually putting faces to listeners was an amazing experience for me and i hope everybody who came to that day thoroughly enjoyed it certainly the feedback we've had has been absolutely fantastic and the weather was kind to us as well throughout the tour of the area around the deposition site great social event in the evening in fact could not have gone any better. One day we'll definitely do it again. And a big thanks to Ian, Magdalena and Joe for their contribution to that and of course to everyone who attended. I've had some brilliant feedback. It was great to meet people face to face. So watch this space for the new Facebook details will probably be around in the next podcast. That will be coming to you soon. Everything you would wish to know about the case and the podcast will be on there. Now. At the Fred the Head day, a number of ideas raised the head at that meetup, and I thought it would be a sensible thing to do just to let people who couldn't attend that day know about the kind of things that were being discussed. Firstly, the view on John Jick as being Fred was fairly evenly split, which is, of course, the sensible approach. I'm fairly evenly split on it. What was clear that there was a very high level of interest in the John Gick story itself. And of course we're allowed to take these little detours the investigation. In fact it's one of the delights of the podcast is that we do go down these little routes and investigate these stories thoroughly and look round any corner we fancy looking round. That's the style. That's the podcast way we do it. I'm not going to stop doing that. Secondly. There's a lot of suspicion around Frank Kuhn he seems at the moment at least to be the favorite perpetrator and we'll be going to be talking about something else in relation to Frank Kun at the end of this podcast but maybe we should be looking at other members of the Kun family maybe even could Fred be Frank's offspring It's a good question so uh, that's something that we're going to be doing a little bit more work on. We also want to look a little bit deeper into maybe tracing the descendants of Peter Huff, who was the original uh, investigator on the case, just to see if we can turn up any original documentation that still exists, but it's not out there in the public domain. Actually, descendants of Michael Posner, I think Michael Posner, who wrote the book, has passed away now. There may be something there as well. So there may be original documentation that still exists that we might be able to uncover. That's going to be part of what we do going forward as well. There was an interesting comment an idea that was mentioned to me by a couple of people who were from Burton on the day which is the concept of under the ferry bridge. Now the ferry bridge is the bridge that goes over the uh, the It's very close really to the deposition site certainly access to the deposition site it seems you could get anything and I mean anything under the ferry bridge. So that's going to be an idea that I want to dig deeper into. You know what was going on under the ferry bridge? Whatever was going on, does that have any bearing, any relation to what ultimately happened to Fred? And the fifth thing that was mentioned by a number of people because one of the things we did at the day was we did a really good timeline of the events which is very very interesting. But also we looked at the images over the years side-by-side side, one after the other and one of the things that a lot of people said was why is there such a difference between the original drawings made at the time and the more recent attempts because technology has developed but all the way through the descriptions of the original finding of the body all we hear is this is a thin man this is a man light on his feet this is a man who is very small in stature Which so much part of that initial investigation but when you look at the images later that ain't a thin man the original images are the later images aren't This sharp angular features the original drawings this sharp nose sharp chin it's all gone it's all replaced by a much more average build up of tissue and fat around the face, doesn't seem to correspond to the physical descriptions of Fred made at the time of the body's discovery. I'm not here trying to fit things into the John Jick story, forget that, I'm talking specifically about why does it change so much and is it all attributable to improvements in technology now you may legitimately be asking at this point well, how are you going to do that because unless you're going to dig up the skull you can't do it well maybe there's an alternative and that alternative involves the university because remember the university had access to that school and created a 3d image of it so somewhere in the archives of the University of Derby is the drawings photographs that type of thing of the we think original skull because the other weird thing that was mentioned to me is when you see pictures of the skull particularly on the ITV documentary that was done and is available I think on the Facebook page if you look at that skull yeah that's the recognizable skull where all the other drawings are done from in the small print of that program the skull is said to have been reconstructed why was the skull reconstructed it clearly says in the small print of that film a reconstructed skull not the original skull why why was the skull reconstructed if that's true there's so something weird going on there there's something weird going on in relation to the skull i've just got a feeling about it and i'm going to chase it down The way we chase that down is probably by starting at the university so if you did miss the featherhead day you missed a great day we hope to have it again don't know when that will be probably in a couple of years time but thanks to everyone who attended and now back to the story before we leave this episode there's a few other updates to mention a few interesting conversations to bring you up to speed on We had the bright idea to speak to Zoe Kun about John Chick. I sent her a picture of John just in case it jogged her memory in any way. Now It's a long shot but you never know and this is what she said. I didn't want to lead her so I didn't explain in any way to her the context of why I was showing her the picture. This was her response. This fellow looks familiar especially in the uniform, but from where? I can't recall. windhill springs to mind and I see him in a hall, perhaps presenting awards. I can also imagine him with a soft voice, maybe one of the barbershop customers, but nothing's definite. I was a brownie, so if he was associated with the scouts she picked this up from the uniform, maybe that's why. So nothing definite from Zoe, but interesting. And I want you to be in possession of as much of what we find out as possible. So I wanted to make you aware of it. Which brings me to another conversation, this time with an old school friend of Zoe Kun, who described to me something that had always puzzled her about the Kun family's emigration to Australia. Now, I'm keeping her identity private at her request, but she said. There are a couple of niggling memories in my head about firstly when the Cuns went to Australia. I was at school with Zoe and at that time we were very good friends. However, when I asked if I could stay in touch with her after she emigrated, I was told very clearly that Zoe was not to have any contact with anyone from Windshill at all. How peculiar. Why was that? And the second memory she had is from a birthday party of Zoe's at 126 Newton Road. One of the children innocently at the party mentioned the war. Frank went absolutely mental in her words. Complete meltdown. And all the children had to go home in the middle of the birthday party. Now that's odd. It's nearly 25 years after the end of the war. And of course Frank's experiences in the war could have been absolutely traumatic. We don't know that. And we don't know what was said either. But many people at that time, many children at that time were aware of the war. Their parents probably had fought in it. So it seems strange for him to react quite in that way. Was he stressed about something else at that moment? Something related to the war? at that exact moment. It seems an extreme reaction. Now, when is Zoe's birthday? I needed to go and check that because we know the party would have been on that date or slightly after it. Zoe's birthday is the 3rd of February. Coincidental that it's so close to John Jick's disappearance? Almost certainly a coincidence. But I raised my eyebrows when I saw that so that's kind of where we are lots to do lots of energy to do it and infinite patience now if the holiday period's over you can look forward to much more regular updates probably every three weeks or so as our investigations continue and I cannot wait to get back into it so until next time enjoy whatever is left of the summer and have a good one The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.